Morning, everybody. How are you? Uh, I hope you are well. We're starting a brand new series today called Steadfast. I'm really excited about this series. I've actually been putting together material for this series for several months now, and I finally get to unload some of it on you. I feel like it's been a burden that I've been carrying. Now we get to carry it together. Aren't you happy about that? Welcome to church. Uh, so I am, I am grateful that you're here, and I know that this series is going to be impactful for you as it has been for me, because this is what God intended. What we talk about in this series in Steadfast, God intended for us to have sticky relationships even in a world that's falling apart. And many times, I think as Christians, we can take our eyes off of, of take them off of Christ and then put them onto our circumstance or the world that's going around and we all have phones and you look at your phone or your computer and you look at Facebook and it looks like the world is falling apart and yet one of the things that I I believe and that I know that we're going to receive hope from is this God knew he knew what we were going to be getting into this isn't nothing in our world right now has caught God off guard can we say amen to that He's not on his heels. He's not wondering, oh my goodness, what's going to happen next? He knows what's going to happen next. And he's given us some core principles for us to govern our relationships because he knew that we were going to be living in a world falling apart. We, we all live in, in, in a world with expectations, don't we? As, as mothers, I want to ask you mothers this question. Um, we, we live in a level of expectations because that's the reason why you put diapers on your babies, Right? You expect some connecting. If you listen to last week's message, you're like, I see a theme here. So I see here's the thing. It's like, don't we know that? Like you put diapers on a baby because you're expecting some things are going to happen. One end or the other, something is going to happen, right? That's just the way it is. Why don't we have a roof on our house? And why do we have a roof on this building right now? We expect that there's going to be wind and there's going to be rain. Why is it that even people who aren't followers of Jesus, they go through and oftentimes they take marital vows? Why? Because they know that there are going to be days ahead that they have to rely upon the vows that they made. It's because times are going to get tough. Because there's going to be conflict. There's going to be disagreements. There's going to be, I can't believe you said that. There's going to be, there's going to be things of, you meant that? that? No, 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 that's not what I meant, but that's, but that's what you said. He, he knew, God knew all along that we're going to be living in a world falling apart. So therefore, he gave us some principles like what we're going to read today. In Matthew 7, specifically, is our main passage. Matthew 7, 1 through 5, is where we're going to draw a lot of our inspiration and instruction. Some of this, even if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're, you're here or you're somewhere else in the state of Georgia, outside of the state of Georgia, outside the United States, however it is that you're tuning in today, there's going to be a part of this passage that even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you've heard before. Or if you're a follower of Jesus, you've heard before as well. But I want us to really see what it is that God intended when he wrote this because there's going to be a part of this that's going to seem like, oh, that's what I've heard and that's what I believe. And yet what God intends for us to see in this is this idea of judgment specifically. And because we live in a world that says, what, don't you judge, what's the next word? Me. Don't you judge me. And there are Christians who have not been discipled in their way of Jesus to the level that they need to, to maturity. And there's also people outside of the faith, and they use these words. And what, they, what these words are being used for is saying, I'm going to live my life on my terms, and how dare you say anything about me? That's what the world would have to say. But that's not what Jesus has to say in this passage, that the world is twisted. So let's lean in. 
Starting in verse 1, chapter 7, Matthew 7. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, well, let me take the plank out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take out the plank of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. In verse 1, this is what the world has tried to redefine. It says, don't you judge me. How dare you judge me? But what Jesus is talking about here is not for us to, or rather, it is for us to be able to speak truth into one another's life. And that's not what Jesus is getting at. What Jesus is talking about particularly is hypocritical judgment, which we're going to see different levels of, of bad judgment as we continue on in this talk. But really, the theme of the whole series that we're going to be getting at for the next several weeks is on the theme of relational resilience. This is what it means for us to be steadfast in our relationships. This is, what, this is what Christ would want us to do as the people of God in a world falling apart. So what is relational resilience? I'm sure you haven't used that terminology this week. So I want to introduce this term and help us to define it with two different phrases. And then I'm going to maybe even take a different perspective. And then I'm going to look at the opposite of that so we kind of see uh, maybe from... Uh, a better viewpoint as to what this is. So what is relational resilience? Relational resilience is this. It's the capacity to keep committed and to recover quickly from relational stress, frustrations, and letdowns. So for us to be the people of God is to be relationally resilient. What does that mean? It's to keep committed. After all, what is, the, what is the, one of the most common terms that are referred to as far as the church, those relationships in the church as being the family of God. So there's a level of commitment to Christ and commitment to one another. So it's the capacity to keep committed and to recover quickly. From what? Relational stress, frustrations, and letdowns. I can guarantee you, if you stick around me long enough, I'm going to let you down. I'm, I'm just not perfect. I'm not. I'm not Jesus. I'm trying to become more like Jesus. I'm going to let you down and you're going to let me down. So I need relational resilience and you need relational resilience because God wants us to stay together. He wants us to be steadfast in our relationships because Christians lean in when the world leans out. Christians lean in and give grace and understanding and mercy when the world says, I'm done with you. I'll define also uh, this terminology, relational resilience, in this way. It's the ability to connect, reconnect, and or resist disconnection from other people. So it's the ability to connect, to reconnect, and to resist disconnection from other people. Although the world will easily write you off, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're part of the family of God, you're part of a, of a local assembly that we call the church... If that's true of you, you should be the most relationally resilient people in your whole group. 
that you're associated with. You should be the most relationally resilient person at worth, even with a boss who you disagree with. You should be, no matter what, that I am going to resist that temptation to separate relationally, and instead I'm going to lean in because the cause of the gospel would draw me to people and also draw me to love my neighbor. Not just my neighbor, but as we're going to see in this passage, Jesus' high level of love is just beyond the people that we know and like, but also those that we maybe disagree with. That we would be sticky. It's because we have a message, and it's the message of hope. It's the gospel message. That if we sever relationships with other people, we no longer have the opportunity to have that bridge of trust to share with them the good news. So what is the opposite of relational resilience? What's the opposite? We, we defined it in two different ways. What's the opposite? Relational rigidity is the opposite of relational resilience, relational rigidity. This is the American culture that we live in right now. We live in a very rigid culture where it's, it's easy to be polarized. It's either you're on my team or you're on their team and there's no middle ground. It's either black or it's white and there is no gray. It's just, it doesn't matter. In the world we live in where there's less and less real friendships, that have lasted over time. This is the world we live in. The world we live in is, is relational, rid, relationally rigid. Or maybe even the relationships, the friendships that we have are very shallow. Where nobody really knows you. They don't know you. They just know that veneer that you put off. But it's shallow. It's not real. It's not you. It's not the essence and beauty of who God is making you to be. All of that has to be worked out in community. This is just further defined by radical individualism that we see. Even the founding of our country, I've talked about this for years now. The founding of our country is just the fabric of America. Is this idea of radical individualism. This rise above. That I can do it and I don't need anyone's help. We see it also with people inside the faith and outside the faith, being so easily offended. Just choosing to walk away or just walk around offended. This leading into a victim mentality. But let me give you a direct quote from what my bride said a couple weeks ago. She says, you will never be victorious if you play the victim. You'll never be victorious if you play the victim. You'll always be looking for somebody else to base your own your own morality, your own status instead of God. You see this in cancel culture, which I want you to know, if you play that game, you too will be canceled. We see it in divorce, inside the church, outside the, of the church. We, we build in relational rigidity into our kids if parents hover over and they're overly active in their kids' lives instead of allowing their kids to live their life. There is such thing as being too close to your kids, smothering them, not allowing them to live their life. Or lastly, just cutting people out of their life, that, out of your life, that thinks, lives, looks, or believes differently than you. Who in your friend circle, your friend circles is where we're going to see in the series, 
Who would you say absolutely believes differently than you? They look differently than you. Their story is different than you. Their ethnicity is different than you. Do you have anyone like that? You too could be relationally rigid because you've chosen to only befriend people who are like you. And we learn, we learn the value of loving our neighbor by leaning into the gospel and learning how to love people who we even disagree with or we just see the world in a different way. David Brooks, in a popular book, he said this. He said, the foundational layer of American society, the network of relationships and commitments and trust, and that the state and market and everything else relies upon is failing. He says, and the results are as bloody as the war. What is he getting at? He's saying everything else that is being relied upon right now, whether it's, it's the networks of relationships that are very fickle and all the, the Facebook groups and all of the little, the little clicky friend groups and all these little false commitments and the trust that, that the state and the market and the government and the politics and who, where you align and all these other issues, social issues, that's all you need to do. And what he says, and I agree, and again, I would recommend you read that book. It's phenomenal. What he's saying is it's failing. Because it's built on a level, I will add this, not to, I will add these to his words. It is built on a, on a level of relational rigidity instead of relational resilience. It's built on, on a, the world standard of a contract mindset. It's just individuals exchanging relational goods and services. And as soon as you or I don't deliver on what we think that we need, then we write the person off. And yet Christians, we have a covenant mindset. We're part of the family. The covenant family of God. Meaning of covenant in relationship is this. Covenant relationship is not merely a mutual acquaintance, but a commitment to responsibility and action as the family of God. You see, it's easy for you to think that I'm committed to you because I'm your pastor. But I want you to know you are, if you're part of this local body, you're also committed in action and you're, you're committed in action and responsibility to one another. We don't have a church model to where the, the ministry team does all the work and we expect you guys just to sit and be fed and, and walk away happy. We call you to a biblical standard. We call you to a higher standard. We call you to the Jesus standard. And I don't say that from some some place that I think, that, uh, some hierarchical place that I'm better than you. Oh, trust me, that's not the case. What I'm letting you know is that's just, that's just where we are in leadership. It takes all of us to be the local expression that we call the church. This isn't about me. This isn't about a title. This isn't about somebody else who serves a lot. This isn't about you just sitting being catered to. This is about us being committed in love and good deeds to one another. That's the way that we're going to become relationally resilient. That's the way that we're going to overcome when the world is wanting to rip us apart. That's the way that we're going to become steadfast. But this idea of covenant relationship, you see this in other parts of the Bible, particularly one of the words that's used over and over and over is this word faithfulness. A key word to describe that, that commitment is faithfulness, of course, but it, all of that is acting out, or it's acted out in an abiding friendship. 
So this idea of faithfulness in the New Testament isn't just your faithfulness to God, but it's your faithfulness to God and one another. We see this in the relationship of Jonathan and David. Incredible covenant friendship they had. 1 Samuel 18.3 says this, And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. They were in a friendship covenant. That no matter what, that they had each other's backs. This is the high call for all of us today. For us to really understand the main passage that we read a few moments ago, we really need to to see for ourselves with fresh eyes Jesus' high level of love for one another that we can see in Matthew 5, 43. I invite you to flip over. It's probably one page over from where we were a moment ago. Jesus said it in this way but a love for enemies. He says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers... What are you doing more than the others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Another word, another way to understand this word perfect, because all of us, as soon as we look at that, we think this is just another one of those little catchwords or catchphrases from Jesus, another gotcha, like I can't be perfect. Another way to perhaps better understand this is to think of this word, it's the Greek word teleos, It means mature, perfect, honest, or blameless, or integrity. So it's it's to be mature, it's to be honest, it's to be blameless, as our Heavenly Father is blameless. See, for us to understand the idea of, of us not judging other people unfairly or unjustly, is to understand that the overall context is this high level of love for enemy. Not just loving people you disagree, that you agree with, but also the people you disagree with. Not only for the people who vote just like you and look just like you, but for those who don't look like you and don't vote like you. It's loving them also. This is how we become and stay relationally resilient in a world falling apart. So that we don't become polarized like the rest of the world is polarized. So we don't just result to black and white thinking like the rest of the world is settling for black and white thinking. Eugene Peterson, in his commentary on Matthew 5.48, he says it in this way, and it's brilliant, I think. In a word, what I'm saying is, grow up, your kingdom subjects, now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives towards you. Just in case there was any confusion on what Jesus said. Grow up, your kingdom subjects. Meaning Jesus is the king. We're bringing about the kingdom of God. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. 
Let's go back again. Flip one page over to your right. Matthew 7. Back to our original passage. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take this speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take out the plank in your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I think this is kind of funny, and I don't necessarily think that Jesus is being funny in this passage, but I think it's kind of funny in real world, because I've had a little project going on at my house, and been building out on my deck and doing all those kinds of things, and it, it looks it looks pretty good, to be honest with you. Had some help. David helped me immensely. It was kind of like he was the brains behind the outfit, and then he would say, hey, this is what we're going to do, and then I would intuitively kind of follow his lead. So when, I don't want you to get a, a misconception here, but what I do know is this. When you're in the middle of a building project, and all of you will know this to some degree, if you get one thing in your eye, that's all you think about. Is that not true? Like you get, if you get anything in your eye, all your, your eyes blinking and your eyes water, and maybe both of them, and you're a mess. And, and, and again, I don't think Jesus is adding humor, humor here. He was humorous, but I don't think he's adding humor. But I think of it through a level of humor. I'm like, how silly is it for me to try and pick apart something from your eye, a plank, a log, essentially, in your eye, when I've had a, a speck in my eye, and my eyes are watering, I'm a blubbering mess, I'm like, I just can't, until it gets out of my eye, I, I'm really, it's impossible for me to do anything else. And I think to a larger point, this is what Jesus is saying. The way for us to truly love one another is, is to judge fairly and not judge hypocritically. Because the hypocritical judgment operates off of what I'm going to call a fault-finding radar. Now, I have education that I used to work on airplanes, so I've studied radar and all those types of things. But let me give you like the simple version of how radar works. Something sends out a signal expecting and anticipating there's going to be something to receive that signal. And then as that, whatever that object is, then it hits another object and then comes back. And then it lets you know, hey, oh, there's something there. So something sends out a signal and then the signal comes back and lets the original person know or the original thing know, hey, there's something there. I think a lot of what we see in our world right now is is with fault-finding radar. We go around looking for faults in everybody else and then we just wonder why we always find them. It's just, oh, it's just, it's just amazing. I, I, wow. If I go around and look, and look in your life very closely at all, I'm going to see faults. If you look into mine, you're going to see faults. You see, fault-finding radar is powered by assumptions, judgment, and suspicion. By assumptions. I'm assuming that I'm going to have a reason to be insensitive. I'm assuming that you're going to fail me. So I'm going to stay I'm going to stay away. I'm not going to get relationally close. I'm going to I'm assuming you're going to let me down, so I'm going to protect myself from that letdown. So I'm not going to be relationally resilient. I'm going to be relationally rigid and I'm going to sit back and you're not going to get the best of me. You're going to only get this really shallow version of me, which is just a real caricature of you, not the real you. It's also judgment. 
not judgment in what Jesus is talking about here, but this is judgment that is a critical spirit. It's just that nagging critical spirit that they get in a room and they are the, they are the negative person and they are ready to tear down or become critical over anybody else or any other thing. This is not the way of God. This is not the way of, of us becoming relationally resilient and steadfast in our relationships. Instead, that's the way of the world. I ran across this, this quote, and I don't know who to give credit to on this quote. It's really good. It actually ties into next week's message, too. You may hear it twice. It's this good. It was either said by Seneca, the Greek philosopher, or it was said by Eleanor Roosevelt, or Eleanor Roosevelt heard it from Seneca and then quoted it. I don't know. So I'm just going to throw the quote up, and you can add it however you want to. This is what the quote says. Strong minds discuss ideas. Average minds discuss events. Weak minds discuss people. Wow. Either way, whether you think it was Eleanor Roosevelt, that was about 100 years ago, near about 90 to 100 years ago, or Seneca, which would be thousands of years ago, still relevant, is it not? Still relevant. For us, we have to get beyond the, the, the embedded bias because of sin. We have to get beyond the critical spirit and, and harsh opinions and black and white thinking. We have to get beyond all of the polarized part of our culture and stop looking at what's wrong in the world and look at what's right with God. Because if you go around with fault-finding radar and you look at me or I look at you or you look on Facebook or you look anywhere else and you look at the headlines on your phone, you're going to find someone or something to be mad at. Why do we do this to ourselves? Why do we do this to ourselves? Why do we live headline to headline and then wonder why Christians don't have the voice that we once did? Why? It's because we've turned on the fault-finding radar and we've simply gone looking for what we wanted to have validated all along. That's not the way of God. That's the way of the world. It's just the way of the world. We have to get beyond that. So how do we do it? Let's get into this word judge very quickly. The word judge is the Greek word krino. And it means judge, meaning pass judgment on. And in this sense, it means to evaluate or form a critical opinion. That's the important part. Form a critical opinion of something by examination or scrutiny. It's that critical opinion. There's a difference between passing judgment and being judgmental. If you're passing judgment, it, it's, it's just maybe just judging on what's right and what's wrong based off of uh, it's just a morality that's rooted in God, potentially. But if you are judgmental, that is a critical spirit. That is a fault-finding radar. That is, in essence, looking for a fault and looking for a reason not to connect with other people at times. So, so the speck and the plank, because it's a metaphor, maybe some of us aren't as intuitive, the speck is a metaphor for faults, and the plank is a metaphor for greater faults. So it's a fault in someone else. But by us being hypocritical and pointing out a, a fault in somebody else, it actually shows a greater fault in us. This is what Jesus is talking about in this passage. So for us, 
it's okay to judge one another's behavior. We just have to do it right. I'm going to give you some tips on how to do that right and how to do it well. We need to judge one another's behavior because we are not only part of the family of God, and as the family of God, we just don't let each other slide into sinful patterns because that's actually not loving at all. If I know that you're getting ready to, if, if I'm in the car with you, or maybe I'm, I'm behind you, and I see, and we're in two different cars, and you're driving ahead of me, and I'm behind you, and we're going to the same place, and yet on the horizon, I see that you're about to, to get into some trouble on the road. Because I love you, I'm going to call you and say, hey, I don't know if you realize this or not, but there's actually danger, and it's danger close to where you are right now. You may have to respond accordingly. Because I love you, I'm going to let you know ahead of a time. If I'm, if I'm apathetic towards you or if I just don't really care about you, uh, what am I going to do? I'm not going to call you and be like, they'll figure it out on their own. But all the while, I'll let you figure it out, but I'm going to hit the brakes because I know danger's coming. When we see one another following, following and falling rather into a sinful pattern, it is a responsibility one to the other to say, hey, danger is coming. You may want to take the appropriate spiritual action. I've seen, I've seen the path you're going down. And because I love you, I want you to know that's a dangerous place to be. I've seen that many, many times, and that doesn't end well for you or your relationships. That, that just I know that you may think that's the right thing, but that's not what God says for you to do. That's actually the path to destruction, not the path to life. But I, I'm not just passing harsh judgment or critical judgment. It's like it's out of a basis of love. You, think, you see, any, this, is, this is key to understanding this as well. Anything that contradicts the truth is a lie. But every time that we call something a lie, we pass judgment. So anything that contradicts the truth is a lie... And to call something a lie is to pass judgment. So, to call adultery or murder a sin is likewise to pass judgment. Because it's not part of the truth. And we do that because we agree with God. So when Jesus said not to judge others, he did not mean that no one can identify sin for what it is. Based off God's identification and definition of sin. It also doesn't mean that there's no mechanism for dealing with sin in one another's lives. But because the world sees things in the way that the world sees them, and because Christians haven't actually perhaps done the best job of guarding one another from sinful patterns, instead we've, we've maybe responded critically or, or un, unjustly or harshly, Christians have maybe even adopted that, that phrase, don't you judge me. So I want to I take apart some bad parts of judgment and add some good parts of the judgment. So Jesus gives a direct command to judge in John 7, 24. This is what he says. Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. By mere appearances. I'm going to reference several scriptures here that you can look up later if you choose to. Superficial judgment is wrong. Superficial judgment 
is wrong. It's foolish to jump to conclusions before investigating facts. Proverbs 18.13 talks about this. This is where conspiracy theories live, by the way. This is the reason why conspiracy theories, hear me clearly on this, this is the reason why conspiracy theories are like tasty morsels for Christians because they don't know the truth. They don't know the truth. So they hear something that sounds like it's true, but they don't have a level of, of in a way to really process what knowledge is. It becomes superficial, so they jump to conclusions before investigating the facts because they don't know how to investigate the facts. Hypocritical judgment is wrong. We see this clearly in the past, in our main passage from Matthew 7, 1 through 7. Harsh, unforgiving judgment is wrong. Some other scriptures, Titus 3, 2 says this, We're always to be gentle towards everyone. We're always to be gentle towards everyone. In Matthew 5, 7, Jesus said, It is the merciful who will be shown mercy. And what did Jesus warn us in the passage in verse 2 from Matthew 7? He warned us. He says, in the, in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will, be, it will be measured to you. Self-righteous judgment is wrong. We're called to humility. We're told clearly that God opposes the proud. James 4, 6. So for us to offer up good judgment and fair judgment to someone else, it's not from a position of self-righteousness. Another version of judgment that's wrong is untrue judgment. The Bible clearly forbids false witness. It's what it says in Proverbs 19, verse 5. And also in the New Testament, it says in Titus 3, 2, to do not, do not slander anyone. So untrue judgment is wrong. So what have we seen thus far? Maybe diagnosing problems in our own life or potentially diagnosing problems in others' lives around us. We see that we cannot judge superficially because that's wrong. We cannot judge hypocritically because that's wrong. We can't judge harshly in an unforgiving way because that's wrong. And also, we can't judge with self-righteous judgment because that's wrong. And we also can't judge with something that is a basis of untruth. And all the while, Christians are often accused of judging or being intolerant of when they speak out against sin. I love what Erwin Lutzer said. He said this. He said, Holding high the standard of righteousness naturally defines unrighteousness and draws the slings and arrows of those who choose sin over godliness. We shouldn't be surprised when the world responds as the world responds. You know, everything that we see, and, and I, again, I'm not even negative towards this because I see through it. I want you to have this kind of overarching truth as well. You can silence a person, but you can't silence the truth. You can silence a person, you can cancel me, but you can't cancel the truth. 
you can't silence the truth. You may try and shut down a different type of person or a people group because you disagree with them or somebody may try to do that to you. But when you live by the truth, that truth will live on beyond you. We need to be people about the truth. So it wouldn't be all that helpful for me just to say, hey, don't pass unharsh judgment and all these superficial judgment. It, it, it wouldn't be as helpful without me giving you some practical tips and steps and a spiritual practice for you to actually live this out. Because if I just tell you not to do something, you scratch your head, you're like, that's great, Pastor, but how in the world am I supposed to do that? Again, there's some other spiritual things that we can do, and the Word of God talks about these. So let me give you some ways to keep from looking for other people's specks and in ignoring your own planks. The first thing I would say is live a well-examined life. What does that mean? What I mean is this, practice silence and solitude and confess the sins that the Spirit of God brings to mind. This is a great spiritual practice for you to implement when you detach from the world or the methodology of the world or the technology of the world. And you pull away, not forever, not that you would be monastic and you'd go live on a cliff by yourself in a cabin, although there's times that would be kind of fun, if I'm honest. That'd be kind of cool, but I'd be bored after about three days, then I'd be looking for you, you know, to, to go hang out and stuff. But, but in seasons and in times, practice silence and solitude. When you pull away from people, the world, technology, the, the ways of the world, God speaks. I want you to know that, and I'll talk more about this perhaps in the future this year, but I want you to know that's also maybe what, what is something that we fear because when you go into silence and solitude, you're going to meet God there, but you're also going to meet Satan there because everything that you've been avoiding by activity, you will be, it will be found in the passivity of that moment. Everything that you've been avoiding by busy schedule and trying to worry about and take care of everyone else and people please and all of that, when all of that goes away and you sit in silence and solitude and it's just you and God, there will be a spiritual battle there. But I want to encourage you with this. Just because it seems like there's a greater spiritual battle there, that's not a sign of your weakness. That's a sign of God's success. Because without the awareness of that sin, without the awareness of that temptation, you would not be able to rely upon, or perhaps you would not rely upon, the power of God and the Spirit of God to pull you through. And I will, I will add this. It gets easier with time. It does get easier with time. Another thing to add to the ways to keep from looking for other people's specks and ignoring your own planks is from Jesus' own words in John seven twenty four. Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. So we're to do this by being discerning. Colossians 1.9, 1 Thessalonians 5.21. To be discerning. Be people who, who don't just receive the message of the world without a filter. But we filter that with a discernment through the word of God. Also, Get to know the whole counsel of God. 2 Timothy 4.2, Acts 20.27. Get to know the whole counsel of God, including the Bible's teaching on sin. 
Another thing to add is gently confront erring brothers and sisters in Christ. Galatians 6.1. Gently confront them. There should be a level of, of humility before confronting uh, an errant brother or sister in Christ. Another difficult thing for Matthew 18, 15 through 17 is practice church discipline. And then Ephesians 4, 15, one of our favorites, is speak the truth in love. This is how we do it. These are, these are things that you can practically do, spiritually know. Renew your mind with the whole counsel of God. Therefore, we can make right judgment with one another. That we can be resilient in our relationships, even in a world that's coming apart. It all comes back to this. When Jesus talks about this idea of judgment, it's on the basis of relationship. When Jesus teaches, it's on the basis of relationship when he's talking here in the Sermon on the Mount. And he, wants to, he does not want us to be hypocritical. Verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And then he says a remarkable thing, and I'm almost through. In verse 6, he says this remarkable thing, verse 6 and 7, and it almost seems misplaced. It seems like, okay, if we didn't have this, this little heading here, like wh- why is this even added here? Because it seems like Jesus changes the subject, but he doesn't. Verse 6, it's interesting. He says, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw away your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. I'll just add this for understanding. Dogs were a, it was a a negative term that the Jews would use for Gentiles. For people who were outside of that scope. But then there's, there's another reference. Do not throw your pearls. I'm going to jump back to the word sacred and pearls. But pigs, it represents the things that are unclean. Some of the commentaries, they had said that this person, they just live in stubborn rebellion. They just are not interested in the things of God. And particularly what Jesus is getting at here. He says, do not give the dogs, those who stubbornly resist the truth, what is sacred. Well, what is sacred? The gospel. You don't, you don't trust the world with the gospel because they're not relationally resilient enough to hold it and carry it generation to generation to generation. And then also, he says, do not throw your pearls to pigs Pearls represents something that's valuable. That's the kingdom of God. So what is being sacred is the gospel. As we are caretakers of the gospel and pearls, which is the kingdom of God. And what is Jesus saying here? He says in these relationships, he says, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw away your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and they turn and tear you to pieces. He says, in other words, we're not going to, you can't trust the world to do what, what the gospel-minded and gospel-formed people can. Because we are the sacred and holy people. We're the covenant people. 
we live in right relationship with one another, or at least we ought to. And it's out of this relationship that Christians possess righteousness through Christ. So that every time that we fail our own standard, we're reminded of the gospel that saves. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is is saying, hey, don't be hypocritical. Because if you're hypocritical, you're going to ignore your own mess and you're going to simply turn on the the fault-finding radar and try to look at everybody else's mess. He says, after all, you're Christians. And if if you are a Christian, you possess the righteousness, the right standing with God. So every time that we fail God's standard, we're reminded not of somebody else's sin, or we're not reminded of us, maybe a shameful pattern that we may sink ourselves into. Instead, what are we reminded of? The gospel that saves and the gospel that saved us. And the only true gospel, the only good news, the only way to have true salvation, the only way to be right with God the Father is through Jesus Christ the Son. Do you know him? Is that the basis of your righteousness? Do you know Jesus? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, and we thank you that we can call you Father. And that you loved us first. That love is not just something you do, it's who you are. Lord Jesus, as we go about our week, God, help us by the power of your Spirit to be relationally resilient. We live in a polarized and fickle world, and we need to be steadfast people. May we do so by your Spirit, by your power, by your discernment, and by making right judgment. Amen. Amen.